0: Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. The date he set was October 22, 1844. There, of course, were multiple days before this that he tried to predict when Jesus would return. But all of them, of course, had been wrong. And unfortunately, this one would be no different. The Millerite movement became one of the largest religious movements in American history. It's funny because it's not really mentioned in a lot of textbooks or anything like that, but well over a million people in the middle of the 1800s had jumped on board the Millerite movement that Jesus was going to return (coughs) soon. This was huge. I mean, this is is like the audiences that you see uh, megachurches draw. This was that on like a regular basis for this movement that gripped America. Several thousand people sold everything they had to give to this movement and to spread the news that Jesus was coming back soon. For them, though, Jesus would not come, and many would be left to pick up the pieces— See, this was very similar to if you had had your house destroyed by a natural disaster, except you had no insurance. Many people sold everything they had because they believed, well, what do I need this for if Jesus is coming back to take us home?
1: Why do I need this house? Why do I need
0: this car? Why do I I need these different things when I can give all this money to make sure that everyone possible can get into the kingdom of God? So they sold a whole lot of stuff. They put they banked everything on this prediction. And when it did not come true, they were left with nothing except the anger they held toward God and toward the movement which they felt had betrayed them. Many of our denomination's founders were a part of this movement, and they would spend the next several days trying to understand and figure out just where they went wrong. In Daniel 8. Fourteen, we find a very specific time prophecy, and it reads, "He said unto them, unto me, unto two thousand years and two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed." This verse was kind of the crux of of the entire prediction that Jesus would come back. And through a lot of complicated history and trying to figure out all these specific years, I'm not going to take us there today. The conclusion was that the sanctuary that would be cleansed was the earth, and that Jesus was going to return at the end of that time. And take us home. This was foundational in figuring out October 22. But Jesus didn't come. So what did they get wrong? Did they get the numbers wrong? Was it actually a different date? Were they wrong altogether? Or were they just wrong about what Jesus actually was going to do? The morning of October 23, 1844. Hiram Edson, a part of this group, had a vision. I'm going to read to you his words. We started praying, and while passing through a large field, I was stopped about midway of the field. Heaven seemed to open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the tenth day of the seventh month at the end of the 2300 days, he for the first time entered on that day the second apartment of that sanctuary— and that he had a work to perform in the most holy place before coming to the earth. The idea was this, in 1800s language. Maybe we didn't get the math wrong, we got the what wrong. But from this moment, the birth of Adventism was set in motion as they realized, wait, we, we got the math right, but what Jesus was doing, we, we got that part wrong. We need to correct that. This was where Adventism was born out But I want us to understand this because it's easy for outsiders and for us to fall into the trap of thinking that we are just leftovers from a failed prediction of Jesus' return. And it's easy to lump ourselves in with groups of people who have done that even up to today. May, what was it, May 12, 2012 or something like that where they thought the world was going to end. Even Y2K was another one of those big ones. And it's easy to think that we are just the Millerite movement continued there are two very, very important factors that make that statement false. Number one, we have never tried to predict the second coming of Jesus since then. We've correctly understood that no man knows the day nor the hour that Jesus will return. And number two, Miller himself never became an Adventist. This was a movement that started out of the remnant of the Millerite movement, but we went a completely different direction. In fact, the Millerite movement, you could argue, was just the way we all met each other. It's kind of like speed dating. That's the way we all got connected. And as we discovered more biblical truths, Adventism ended up being born. In the Old Testament, God created the sanctuary model for the Israelites to follow. And as the people would sacrifice animals on the altar in the courtyard, the high priest would take the blood from that animal inside the tabernacle and offer it for the forgiveness of sins for the people. And once a year on Yom Kippur, he would enter into the most holy place and sprinkle that blood on the altar and intercede for the forgiveness of Israel. And what our early founders had realized was that heaven's model for salvation is very, very similar to the sanctuary model that Jesus had set up or that God had set up with Israel in the Old Testament. In other words, the way of sanctification, that that earthly sanctuary that we see in the Old Testament with all these specifics involved, heaven's not much different as far as salvation is concerned. There's a temple in heaven. It would be the easiest way for me to just say that to you. But the key difference is this. Instead of a literal lamb's blood being used to forgive sins, instead it would now be the blood of Jesus Christ the true lamb lamb of God and what they realized that was Jesus in 1844 by their estimation had entered the most holy place in heaven and was now entering the final phase of his judgment this is where we get or start to get investigative judgment what exactly is Jesus doing in the heavenly sanctuary what is going on and what does that mean for us In Zechariah 3, we find the most beautiful depiction of the gospel in the Old Testament. And I believe this is actually key in helping us to understand exactly what Jesus is doing in securing our salvation. Because make no mistake, his, his death and resurrection, that was the moment. That's the moment we look to in history that we accept. So then if we, if we say that that is what saves us, then what is this need for this work in the sanctuary? That's exactly what I'm going to answer today. In Zechariah 3, he has shown a vision. Zechariah has shown a vision of Joshua, the high priest, representing all of Jerusalem, is standing before the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and Satan. We're going to read in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, is this not a people that I have saved from danger? Is this not a people I have saved from certain death? Verse 3, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And we're going to pause right there. (coughs) What I love about this moment in this vision, understanding that Joshua represents the entire nation of Israel here, But you can also see this as individually. This is a man standing before God in judgment. What I love is that Joshua's clothes aren't covered. God just doesn't give him some clothes and say, hey, put this on over what you're wearing. In fact, they are completely removed. And there is a moment where Joshua is standing before this court, basically completely naked, completely exposed, and it is there that God says, all right, let me give you something completely new. And then he treats him as if he was wearing those clean clothes the entire time. The second thing I love about this, and this pattern will continue as we read the, 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 the rest of this vision. The second thing I love about this, Joshua is totally silent. He never says a word throughout this entire exchange. He just stands there and accepts whatever comes his way. Satan is accusing him, and he is silent because, and here's the key, he knows he is guilty. There's no talking your way out of this. There's nothing he can do or say to change anyone's mind, and he is literally wearing the evidence to court. Imagine seeing a murderer in court wearing the blood-stained clothes from his victim that only he would have. He's wearing the evidence of his sin in court. And he is given new clothes. Let's finish this vision. Verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven (coughs) eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Notice what God commands after he's already removed the old clothes and given Joshua new clothes. He says, look, I gave you clean clothes. Now keep them clean. If you are a parent, you know how frustrating, how annoying and how angering that request is. It's so seemingly easy. Just keep your clothes clean. And then right as you, before you're even finished with that sentence, your kid's off in the mud again. It's one of the most frustrating things. And yet here's what God is saying. Look, I've given you clean clothes. Don't go rolling around and get your clothes all dirty again so that I have to do this again. But what I find so interesting is this is mirrored perfectly. Look, no matter how many times your kid jumps in that mud, you're still going to give them new clothes. And Jesus is the same way. He says, look, keep them clean. But if you get them dirty, I got a new pair waiting for you. I got a new, fresh new pair of pants. I got a new shirt. I got some new shoes for you that are clean. And every time I give them to you, I will ask you the same thing. Remember that you are wearing clean clothes. You see, the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary is not to investigate our works and see if we've been good enough. Unfortunately, we stand silent in the judgment knowing that we haven't been good enough. All Jesus cares about while he's in that sanctuary is this. Whose clothes are you wearing? What are you wearing? In Hebrews... We are told that because Jesus lives forever, he has permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What Jesus is doing in the sanctuary is literally the work of intercession. All he is doing is saying, God, here are the people that are wearing my clothes. See them. See the people who have accepted these new clothes. All he's doing saying, see, look, Ryan has accepted new clothes. Pat has accepted new clothes. Carolyn, you've accepted new clothes. They're good. They're good. This isn't about determining who will be saved. It's about determining who has been saved. There's a much bigger difference. And this work continues until Jesus comes again. I forget the verse, it's just coming to my mind now. This is the Lord is, uh, is faithful to come back, but he's waiting so that as many might come to Jesus as there might be will. He's waiting for every single person that will come to Jesus. He's waiting for them. Waiting as long as he possibly can. So that he can say, yes, they've accepted the clean clothes. Now this is the important caveat I need us to understand today. Because while we are not saved by works, it is absolutely possible that we decide whether or not we are judged by those works. In other words, it is your decision, it is my decision, whether or not we want to be judged by our works. And absolutely, you can stand before God and the only merits you have are your life decisions, and your good choices and your bad choices, your mistakes and your flaws and your perfections. It is absolutely possible for you to decide that. Because as we stand before Christ, it is our choice whose clothes we wear. And for those who don't accept Christ, they are saying, look, I'm going to wear my clothes, and if what I'm wearing isn't good enough, then so be it. I'm going to be judged by my own life. You've heard this reasoning before if you've talked with someone who is strongly agnostic or atheist, and they say, look, I'm just me, and I believe I'm a good person. I haven't murdered anyone. They're looking at their own clothes. But what Jesus is desperately yelling to us is this. No, your works aren't good enough to save you. And if they were, I would not have had to die for you. And why would I needlessly die for you if you could do this on your own? Why would I have to do this for you if this was something you could have done from the very beginning? Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Even your good is not good enough when it comes to salvation. But if you want to stand before God and say, hey, this is what I've done, take it or leave it, you have every right to do that. Just know, the scripture tells us what, you know what the result will be. Leave it. On our own, our works will never save us. But Jesus still leaves it to our choice. This is why we see scriptures and texts in the scriptures say that the dead will be judged by their works. Those, there will be people who are judged by their works because they've chosen and elected to be judged by their works. We just happen to know the outcome before that moment happens. It's not going to be good enough. The only way that we are saved is if we allow Jesus to clothe us with new clothes. And when we accept those new clothes from Jesus, just as Joshua did, we count ourselves dead to sin, and now we are alive in Christ. And this is one of the most difficult concepts i found Christians struggle to understand, of all denominations. How can someone else's clothes save us, and how can someone else's life save us? See Romans 6.11 tells us, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So on a practical level, I'm going to tell you today the one thing that has helped me understand this, and I did not get it until this year. I've just kind of accepted that and waited until I finally get it. Maybe this will help you. Maybe it won't. Maybe your journey is a little bit more complicated, and maybe this will just confuse things more for you, in which case, I'm sorry. (laughs) Forgive me. I want to talk about your identity. Who you are. Identity is one of those things that right now is kind of the hot button topic in politics and in, in, in secular society in general. We're talking about gender identity, we talk about sexual identity, we talk about political identity, religious identity. Identity is huge. It's at the center of what my generation of pastors will have to navigate. That's the baton we've been handed. Yay, I'm so excited. <laughs> But identity, what i found, is much more complicated than I originally thought. And I don't mean in gender and sexual identity. That is a whole mountain on its own. What I mean is who I am. See, if you want to know who I am, you'll ask me, Ryan, who are you? And and I'll tell you probably what I do. I'll tell you what I believe. And I'll probably share with you, as I have many times in, in my sermons, stories from my past and, and memories. And what we, would, what we would tend to agree on, on, on some sort of base level, is, is who you are is somewhat the summation of your experiences. All of the things in your past have led up to who you are now. Decisions you made have affected the way you think now. We tend to say, yeah, my identity is, is wrapped up in my memories, in my understanding of myself. I've had two family members, one who has already passed, one who is on her way, who both have suffered from Alzheimer's. And there may be some of you in here who know what it's like to struggle and watch someone fight with Alzheimer's. It's the most frustrating thing in the world, not only for the people around you, but for you yourself, because you know you know you're losing your grip on reality and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's scary. When you look at someone with Alzheimer's, I remember sitting at the dinner table with the, the distant family relative who has since passed. And I remember her sitting across the table from me completely just a shell of a human being. She just stared right through me, trying to figure out maybe who I was. But we don't know because she wouldn't say anything. She had no concept of where she was, who I was, who we were, even her own daughter. She could not identify. The person who had been taking care of her 24 seven for over 10 years. When I think about Alzheimer's, the question that I ask is who holds your identity? Is it you? Because if it's you, Well, that's a pretty fragile and frail place to hold it. Because all it takes is the slightest imbalance. All it takes is the slightest step into Alzheimer's, which many of us do not have control over. And suddenly you lose what you were holding on to. What we found in the greater sphere is we've jumped into this issue of Alzheimer's. This terrible tragedy and how it rips families apart. What we found is that you are not the one who holds your identity. Your identity is held by the community around you. Because when I want to talk with someone and they can't tell me who they are, who's the next person I turn to? Their closest friends and their closest family. Because now that person's identity, they cannot express it, they cannot say it, they cannot tell me about themselves. But those closest to them can. Your identity does not die with you. But it lives on in those around you. For those of you who don't know me, I've shared this story many times. I'm not going to tell it again. But for those of you who don't know this about me, my father died when I was 17 years old of a heart attack. And I've learned more about him in that time than I ever knew growing up with him. Because as I've talked with my uncle, his younger brother, as I've talked with, with family around him, as i watched a church fill up for his funeral with over a thousand people of whom we never knew he had even interacted with, as I watched a church dedicate their sound booth to him with, with in memorial because he had helped design the church, build it, and help them figure out all of the different elements with acoustics in the room. And I heard story after story of what my dad had done, who he had interacted with, and the, goodness that he, and the goodness that he had brought in his community. If you want to know who my dad is, you can't go talk to him. You talk to me, you talk to his wife, you talk to one of my siblings, you talk to his best friends. But my Father is no longer the one who holds his identity. It lives on in us. When we die to our sin, we are implicitly saying, Jesus, you are now the one who holds my identity. And if anyone wants to know who I am, all they have to do is look at you. I just got Chills for me because that was that was earth shattering for me. To understand how identity works because I'm not the one who holds it. And when I die to my old self, I'm saying, Jesus, I want you to be the sum of my identity. I want you, my experiences with you to be what defines who I am. And I want your clothes, when people see them, to understand that my identity is in you. When I was in sixth grade we would, that was the first year in middle school where we started uh, moving from class to class. We weren't with the same teacher every day. And at my elementary school and middle school, I went through a K through 8th grade school, so it's kind of both. We had this thing called the Annex. It was this separate building of just classrooms, kind of just a line of classrooms. There was a little uh, kind of overhang or breezeway in front of the doors. And then about 15, across a a gap of probably 15, 20 feet of grass, there was the back of the gymnasium. This is all relevant, I promise. What we would do as we we went from class to class is if the class inside that we were going to wasn't done yet, we would line up on the wall just outside of the door, backs against the wall, just waiting, which means that you're staring at the back of the gym. And on this particular day, it was pouring rain. It had been pouring rain all day, and I was very thankful for that breezeway that had a cover. And we looked out just past the edge of the sidewalk, that we were, the pavement that we were standing on, and we saw in the grass this huge puddle. And I looked at my friend, who was standing next to me, and I said, how much do you want to bet I can jump that puddle? We didn't have any money, so we didn't bet anything. But he said, I dare you, do it. So I stepped back as much space as I possibly could, and I ran like the the four feet of space I had, and I jumped in straight out into the rain. And I cleared that puddle, not realizing that just beyond it was another one, (laughs) because the grass was just high enough to hide that water. And as I landed, I, I stomped my feet, knowing I had made it confident that I had cleared this puddle. And as I landed in this mud, my feet just kept going forward <laughs> as the rest of me stopped. It's like slipping on a banana peel in the old cartoons. And I landed, pouring rain in front of 30 of my classmates, and ruined my clean clothes. And right at that moment, class got out. <laughs> and out comes the teacher, <clears throat> sitting, seeing me just sitting in the mud. For, you can see the same disappointment some of you have, you understand. She had, and she hit it so well. She brought my class inside, and she said, Ryan, stand out here because you're soaking wet. <laughs> She said, wait a second. She went back inside, settled the class down as I'm just standing there going, this is how it ends for me. It's been a good run, Lord, but my time has come. Sixth grade was a year. Sixth grade was a year. And she comes back out with, she didn't have shorts, but she came back out with a brand new T-shirt and a towel. She said, go to the bathroom, dry yourself off, and put on the clothes I've given you and then come back to class. And so I did. And I sat back at my desk. And the rest of the day, people would look at me and say, wait, weren't you wearing something else earlier? And I would get to tell them the story of how this one teacher had mercy on me because she had given me new clothes to wear so that I wouldn't have to be dirty and sit in my mistakes and my shame the rest of that day. My teacher has since died. I went to her funeral, and it's one of the only funerals I've ever cried at. I'm not a big crier, because I remembered that story, and I remember a moment where I honestly should have been in trouble, and instead she showed mercy on me. All my friends knew, the second I put on those clothes, whose clothes I was wearing. They knew that I was no longer wearing my own, and they knew that I was dry because someone showed mercy on me. So my question for you this morning, whose clothes are you wearing?